Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs Chow House. Episode 79 features one of the best stories about a high school state champion from Marion County who decided to stay in his home state and play for the blue and white. His blue grit and determination helped lead the Wildcats to the 1996 National Championship and then back to the championship game in 1997. Playing for Coach Rick Pitino, he was part of the well-oiled Big Blue Machine from 1993 to 1997. That machine produced 114 wins, three SEC tournament titles, two Final Fours, and one national championship. A part of that Big Blue Machine that steamrolled their way through the 90s was Anthony Epps. Coach Rick Pitino said Anthony Epps is a winner. Next to the definition of winner in Webster's Dictionary should be Anthony's picture. From being a high school state champion and then making the transition in a support role to his freshman year at Kentucky to emerging as a leader that brought title number six back home to Lexington, you'll be hard-pressed to find another one like him anywhere in college basketball again. He's an untouchable, and this is his story. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House, and his guest, Anthony Epps. Anthony, you may be the only player in Kentucky basketball history, going back well over 100 years, who <laughs> came here and become a star, and your daughter comes along and is even a bigger star. So it's no longer – Michaela is Anthony Epps's daughter. It's that Anthony Epps is Michaela's father. Yeah, that's that's a great ring right there. I was, you know, it's just looking back over my career, which you know I did win a national championship and I got to play in another Final Four the following year with a chance to win back to back. And then looking back over her career, just the things that she did to transcend uh, the game of women's basketball in the state of Kentucky not only for the Lexington area, but I think she did it for the whole state because people really followed that team and she was a part of it. And she took that took that role as as a role model for a lot of young ladies that's playing now that want to be the next Michaela Epps or whatnot. And that's just a great feeling. Going through the process of being a father, having been a player growing up following college basketball in UK and then becoming a star at Kentucky and – Suddenly you're out of the game, but you've got a young daughter. I remember vividly on senior night in 97, <laughs> there was a little girl you was holding. Yes. That was Michaela. Yes, that was Michaela. That was, uh, you know, that was a great feeling to have her out there with me that night and enjoy that moment for me. And then it was an even greater feeling for me to go out on her senior night. You know, it's like the roles reverse. So, you know, I can, it's just – Bring a big smile to my face to really 
look over those 20 years and, and the way that things worked out for, for the both of us. Tell me a little bit about how it was when she got up to be 11, 12, 13 years old, and you could see she had special talent then in high school. How difficult was it to be a father of a star and still play just the father's role and and, and at the same time not get too involved where you lost the father-daughter relationship? Well, uh, the thing about Michaela is when she was younger, she always played with the boys. You know, I think the boys kind of roughed her up and it taught her a lot going forward. Then as she got older in her teens, uh, lucky for me, I got a chance to be on the coaching staff. So I was there with her day-to-day throughout high school. Uh, basically, she started high school when she was in sixth grade and playing up. So I give a lot of credit to Trent Milby because he's a guy that seen something in Michaela that I didn't see. I, I knew that she was going to be good. I didn't know if it was going to be basketball softball or soccer because she loved all those growing up. But he's seen something else in her in her basketball game and said she can be the next the next best thing in, in the state if she works hard at it. And lucky for me, he gave me a chance to come along, be on his coaching staff, and I got to see it every day in high school. But that was funny that, uh, you know, I played the game, I knew the game. But if I tell Michaela something – it's like it went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> and it if, happens with all parents. And if Trent said it, the same thing, she was like, oh, okay. So so that was kind of a little humbling experience right there. But I think us us two working together on her and, and keeping her focused and her mom doing a great job and her grandparents and on both sides of the family, I think they de- we, we developed a pretty special young lady. Uh you're into a new job this year for the first time. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, actually, it's not the first time. Uh, I'm a four-year uh, special education teacher at Camelsville, Camelsville High School, coaching girls basketball over there. It's going into my third year. Uh, we've been making a little momentum in the right direction. My first year, we got beat in the district finals. Uh, not district finals, district semis with a chance to go to regional. And then last year, we finally got over the hump. And we won a district title for the first time in 16 years for that program. So we're moving in the right direction. I, I got a couple of young kids that can really play, and I'm going to keep pushing them. And we're just going to keep going from there. And whatever happens, happens. You know, as you get older, you realize it's not about wins and losses as much as developing young men and women as a coach. Let's talk about that just a little bit. From the time I first met you as a freshman, here back in 93, 94, you've always been a people person, but you've been so much more uh, dedicated to young people and help develop on young people. And, and being an educator, you, you follow through on that. It, tell me what's so special about that rather than just being in another sports job after high school and college. Uh, the special thing about being an educator is you got a chance to, to change people's lives. You know, it's just the way I look at it, coaches are good educators because they always around and they mentor young men and women on the field. But in the classroom, it's different because you get to see the other side of that person. And then you get to get to figure out what can I do to help them in the classroom be successful. So that's, that's what brings a smile to my face every, every day. I can have a bad day, but I'm working with individuals that I know I'm doing something right and it's going to help them 
as they get older. And uh, I do a lot of talking with student athletes throughout the day about about the college. You know, every kid right now think they're college ready to play sports. And I just tell them, you have no idea. <laughs> you know, it's it's a college sport, but it's a job because college coaches they're your they're your boss, and if you don't do your job, they get fired. So if you don't come in prepared, ready to work hard and sacrifice, you have to you have to sacrifice. And we learned it back in '96 because we had a lot of guys with a lot of talent that if they didn't make some sacrifices, we probably never won a championship. So I just preach to these young student athletes that it's more than just your game because colleges are recruiting for a reason. They always recruiting to get better. And if you don't do your job, the next man will come in and take your job from you. When you go through these routines, you're you're very active on the social media. You're on Twitter. What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, Epps underscore Anthony. And you're always putting out little sayings that are sort of positive in nature. Uh, Yes, sir. Be yourself, you know, things like that. Uh, who, who are you directing that to? Who are you trying to communicate with there? Actually, I'm, I'm communicating with myself, you know, because a lot of things that I see and, and read, something to catch my eye, and I feel like if it's hitting me a certain way, then why not share it? Because somebody else may need to hear it, even though you don't talk on a direct one-to-one line. When you put stuff out there, people are always commenting back like, thank you, I needed that, or that's exactly what I needed to hear today. And that's just a that's a wonderful feeling knowing that I'm sharing what somebody else has shared with me to, to get me through the day or whatnot, so to speak. Different coaches in different places have different theories about social media, Twitter in particular, since you and I both see each other right. very often. Now, what's your take on Twitter? Love it. I love it. Uh, but – but you have to be careful of, of what you what you put out there because once it's out there, it's, it's out, there. It's there. So, but I love I love the platform that it gives student athletes and just people in general, you know, to to speak speak your mind. Uh, like Rex Chapman, I love watching see what Rex is going to tweet <laughs> next because Rex is Rex and the stuff he puts out there. I know he he gets underneath a lot of people's skin and I love it. Because, you know, that's their freedom of speech. And Rex is putting stuff out there. And like I said, I love it. And I, I follow a lot of coaches to, to see what they say and, and use that for me in my young coaching career. And it's just – I think it's a great platform for people to feed off of each other and see how other people think out there in the world. Let's go back to your childhood. Uh, growing up, uh, what sports did you like when you were a teenager just getting in seventh, eighth, ninth grade? Um, my – I played the main sports. I played uh, basketball, football, and baseball. They were my uh, my main sports that I, I really and truly love. Uh, this is going to be a little – I think people going to be a little shocked at this, but I, football was my number one love growing up. Uh, started out in middle school. I was a wide receiver. Uh, didn't like contact, but I loved the game. And as I got older, I realized that football – Made me a better basketball player because it gave me a little toughness. You know, I. I well, what what did you play? I mean, if you didn't like contact, uh, right? What's the position you like to play to avoid <laughs> contact as much? 
odd. It just wasn't the fact that I didn't that I was avoiding, but I was wide receiver, and I would catch a pass, be running, and somebody's about to come and clock me. I may step out of bounds or you know try you to become a little faster. Try to avoid <laughs> it, but uh, as I got older, when the defenders coming at me, I, I kind of took it to them. I was get hitting them before they hit me, and and I think it made me like I say, it made me tougher with basketball because it made me look gritty. And I didn't mind getting out there, sticking my nose out there, and and getting a little down and dirty when it came to basketball. And and I had one uh, one of my former coaches when I was in middle school, uh, Coach Hensley, David Hensley, told me one time that he thought I could play on Sundays, football, because he he seen something something in me. But as I got older and got through high school, and people start recruiting me a little for football, a little for basketball, and then when Rick Pitino came along, that was like, you know. It's, the greatest thing to be a Kentucky kid with a shot to go to the University of Kentucky, uh, it's just it's hard to pass up, and that's when Kentucky was starting to get back to where we're at the top. So, in high school, when did you start thinking about at what point that you had the talent to play at the SEC NCAA level? Actually, I didn't think about it until probably about my junior year of college. <laughs> Not juggling, but uh, I knew I had had the talent to play at college, play in college, a sport, either football or basketball. But I didn't know which one was going to be right for me. But like I said, as I got older, Rick Pitino came along, basketball, Kentucky basketball, just the tradition and everything really got to me. And that's where I wanted to go. And once I got here, you know, I, I realize how much you have to work. You know, it's not just from October to March. It's year-round. So, I just learned. And then you get talent like the Tony Delks, the Walter McCarty's, the Antron Walkers, Derek Anseron Mercer coming in, and you hearing how good they are coming out of high school. And that their goal was to get to the NBA, so they pushed me to get better. And I think – and then – also, I, I made this comment to Rex one time, uh, you know, playing summer games against with Rex Chapman, Kenny Walker, Jamal Mashman. Those guys gave me confidence by playing with them that, hey, you belong here. You can play here. So just go out there and have fun and make a name for yourself. Tell me a little bit about your high school career, your sophomore, junior uh, years in high school. I, the biggest thing for me was my freshman year uh, – I was a two guard. Tim Davis was my high school coach. We had another uh, guard that was a little bit shorter than me. And I guess back then, uh, the shorter person I always had to be the point guard. So I was I was a two guard. I was a shooting guard. But then as as I got older, from my sophomore year on, we had assistant coach. I think it either Josh McKay or Danny Marks that suggested that he makes a switch, move me to point guard, and move the point guard to shooting guard because he, he was a better shooter. And they just said it, the way I picked up the game and could see the floor would be better attribute for the team as a point guard. So from that point on, I just moved on to point guard and just kept learning. I was my thing was I wanted to be a coach on the floor. So I knew I always wanted to know where everybody's supposed to be on every play. So if they mess up, I can direct direct them to where they need to go and the offense still move accordingly. And I just continued to work on it all throughout. And then probably about my junior year, my recruitment kind of picked up a little bit. It was, uh, I want to say, one of the 
the first colleges at the D1 level was James Madison. And I think Phil Cunningham was coaching there at, uh, coaching there then. And it was funny because I had no clue about nothing, the recruiting process and all of that. And one day Coach Davis told me that, hey, we're going to go out to the city park. Phil's going to come in. I'm like, why well, we got to go to the city park? He was like, that's just what colleges do. They want to see you at different places working out and whatnot. So we went to the city park. He came in. I worked out for him. And it was the beginning to the end. How many uh, different schools recruited you? Our D1 schools, I didn't have a lot. Uh, one of my very first offers, like I said, James Baston came in but didn't really get an offer. Wright State was the first. Out of Dayton. Out of off, first offer that I got. Did an in-home visit, and I had no clue about You know, they they drove to small town, left to Kentucky, came to my mom's house, sat down, had a great time with the coach then. And that's when it really opened my eye that I can play at the next level. Did you did you make any official visits to any schools? No. Or did they have that then? I I think they had it. The only place I came was to Kentucky. I I came up for a ball game, and uh, it was pretty neat to be out there. Little, little guy walk in and, and, you know, the crowd chant your name like they still do, and that's why we got the greatest fans excuse me, in America because they know everything about the guys that the coaches are recruiting. And I came in, they would chant my name, and just the feel of walking in Rupp Arena for the first time as, as the recruit on a different side was just unbelievable. What was your first meeting or your first conversation with Rick Patino like? I was a little uh, eye-opening, you know. Because this is Rick Bettino. He's at the University of Kentucky. Uh, had a phone conversation. Uh, never forget it. It was like the first thing he wanted me to do was come as a walk-on. Uh, gave me basically ultimatum. Say if he called on a Friday, he wanted to answer by Monday. You know, <laughs> that's just coach being coach. And uh, I was the type of kid that I didn't want to rush nothing. And – you know, more schools was starting to try to get in on me. Like UofL was get starting to get in on me. Uh, Dirk Smith was like a mentor to me. He he told Denny Crum that this kid can play. You need to go check him out. Uh, so that was that was great. And I didn't give Coach P the answer that he wanted by Monday. So it basically almost like he pulled the offer off. He's been known to do that a few times. Yeah, he's been known to do that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But uh, when that happened. You know, I basically went home and thought about it more. And the next day, I came back to my high school coach and just said, "You know, I think I, I think I should take that offer. I think that's where I want to be at. It's going to be the best thing for me down the road outside of basketball." So he called him back and uh, coach gave the offer and said it was still there. And so I accepted the, the walk-on offer. And I, a lot of people probably didn't know that I was coming as a walk-on at first, but. Uh, it was really came down between he had one scholarship. It was, we'll say, Ed O'Bannon. Mm-hmm. It was going to UCLA. Mm-hmm. And I think it was UCLA and Kentucky was his final two. And if Ed would have came to UK, I would have still came as a walk-on. But he did make a promise at it. If we don't get Ed. You get the scholarship. I get the scholarship. And you got the scholarship. And I got the scholarship. And I think it worked out well for, for both programs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you get to Kentucky, uh, you're – when you walk in on campus that summer, uh, they just got off a Final Four run in uh, New Orleans, if I remember correctly. Uh, got beat by a Michigan team, I think, if Dale Brown had been healthy. If he never bumped his shoulder or whatnot. Yeah. 
they win that game. Yeah. Because he was playing outstanding. I, I watched it, and it was, you know, Jamal Mastrom was the best player in the country at the time. No, I don't care what anybody says, you know. And, and then I think Dale Dove out the loose ball, hit his shoulder, and kind of took his took him out of the game. And if he was healthy, I think Kentucky wins that year. And so you're coming in, and, and suddenly the, the wheels are rolling again at Kentucky. You've gone through the Eddie Sutton, the end of that era. You've uh, withstood two years of – probation of no tournament play right. uh, in uh, 92 and 91. You had the best record in the SEC, although you couldn't play in the tournament. 92, you had the famous game against Duke. 93, you're in the Final Four. You're coming in. You, things are ready to really roll. And then uh, sort of a little bit of speed bump there in that in your freshman year with the team uh, losing to Marquette, I think, in the tournament. Yeah, Marquette beat us down in St. Pete. Uh, we had we had a lot of we had a talented team back then. I don't think we had a national championship caliber team at the time, but we had a lot of talent. Uh, like you said, Kentucky basketball was getting back to where it belonged, and we did hit a speed bump. But that speed bump only made us realize we got we got to take the next step individually. So everybody came back to work harder. We got some. Some top-notch recruits came in and just took off from there. You you were twenty-seven and seven that year, which was obviously a very very good uh, season. You finished in the top ten in both polls, number seven the AP, number eight in the USA Today, and things were going pretty good. Uh, you uh, you lost seventy-five to sixty-three to, to Marquette, uh, was considered an upset. Marquette was yes. a pretty good team though. That was uh, just you know. One in the NCAA tournament on any given night, anybody can can beat you. And we didn't play our best; they played exceptional and they won. So you got to give them a lot of credit. Twenty-seven and seven sounds good to a lot of people. Didn't sound too good to Rick Pitino that year, <laughs> or the Kentucky fans because we always dreaming big. You know, we sometimes it's almost national championship every year a bust. <laughs> but twenty-seven and seven was a good year, and we did Marquette upset us and give them a lot of credit. But we. Did, we went back to work and picked it up the next couple of years. Next year was really online to be a great year. Yes. Uh, you end up 28-5. and five. I mean, that's, that's pretty doggone good. You were, again, number two in both the AP and the USA Today. Yes. Uh, had an outstanding season throughout the year. Uh, you beat Indiana. You, you went on a big run. You uh, – You lost a couple games in the conference. You lost uh, at Arkansas. Arkansas was – man, yeah. they were a great team back then, weren't they? That was great basketball. We, I mean, that was 40 minutes of uh, the yeah. one south. Yeah, the one south. <laughs> uh, the, the thing about it is if you never played in that game, you really don't understand the the love that the players had for each other, but the rivalry was just – it brought the best out of everybody. And – Throughout that season, you get into the uh, SEC tournament. I, 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 there, there have been a couple. The Mississippi State might be close to it, but I don't think there will be anything that will overcome that comeback against Arkansas in overtime. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because you're playing against the Arkansas team that had four or five pros, maybe more, uh, Scotty Thurman, Corliss Wilson, uh, big – Big boy Dwight, uh, 
Corey Beck, the point guard, and you had a Hall of Fame coach over at Nolan Richardson. And a team that played in the national championship game. The year before. Yeah. In Haiti, Kentucky. Yeah. They hated Kentucky. We hated Arkansas. So it was game on. You know, we got down. But we just kept fighting. We kept fighting. We kept fighting. And uh, lucky for me, I got, I got a chance to hit the free throws that game, I, I think, and send it to yes. overtime. I, yes. Roger Rose stepped up, missed a couple, and I, I got in and hit a couple free throws. So, you know, that's one of my greatest moments is being able to, in a game with that atmosphere and that magnitude between two teams. I mean, there were like 40,000 people in the Georgia Dome. Rocking. Rocket. The Georgia Dome. And it rocking. looked like it was hopeless, though, with about three or four minutes to go in regulation. Yes, and we found something. Uh, I don't know what it was. We just found something deep inside that we were going to fight to the end, and whatever happened, happened. And then all the momentum turned to our side. In, in that three- or four-year stretcher, it seemed like that Arkansas was pretty close to owning you in the regular season, but they didn't want any part of you when it was one and out. Right, right. It was – just tr- tremendous basketball on on both sides, you know. They would get us in the regular season. Come tournament time, we get them. And it just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And just great games to be a part of. You get into the tournament, uh, you uh, end up uh, beating Mon- uh, Mount St. Mary's, Tulane, Arizona State. You're on an 11-game winning streak, and you run into North Carolina. and Down in Birmingham. Birmingham and you got to tell me now what really happened. I mean, we know what happened after the game, but what happened during the game, I think uh, uh, Roderick Rhodes was uh, on the bench and someone got in foul trouble. And uh, legend has it that uh, he put him back in and told him not to take a shot. And he took a couple of shots. Well, I, I can't speak on that because I, I don't know that part of the legend. Uh only thing I do know, remember about that game was towards the end is I think it was Andre Reddick and Rasheed Wallace or somebody got, Rasheed in, Wallace, got okay. into it and a, couple, a technical foul was called. They had a little free throws, gave him a little momentum. But, you know, that was also an, another great game to be a part of because you had so much talent. And it's the talent is great today, but it's not the same like it was back then when you had teams with four or five people that was going to – go to the NBA, and we ended up with nine, nine or ten guys. So you can imagine. That team was good enough that had you beaten North Carolina and had you won the infamous 97, there could have been a four-year run there. Should have been. Should have been. We should have So you're saying they should have been. We should have beat North Carolina that year. And if we get to the Final Four, I think we win that year. And then you know what we did in 96. And should have been 97. Even though we had one of the – my my thought, the player of the year, Derek Anderson, got hurt. If he never gets hurt, I think we run away with that one. That's a, there's a trivia question there, but we'll get to that a little bit <laughs> later when we get into it. But, but, but after that game or after that season, uh, Rick was really upset uh, yeah, he was for bad. whatever reason. And I guess it's because he felt like he had the talent and the team that could win it all. Right. And it, and, and Roderick Rhodes left. And, and I like Roderick. He's a he good dude. Rod was a great me. guy. Uh but was that just a case of trying to mix oil with water between him and Rick? Was he left then? I say so. I say that uh, you know, coach wanted things one way, and Rod was another way type of guy. That but Rod was ultra competitive. I don't think nothing that, and anybody you can never say nothing bad about him because when he stepped on the court every day, he competed. I think what happened was 
between Rod and Coach, and it's probably going to stay between Rod and Coach because it was never brought to none of the players' attention about why he just felt like it a better choice for him to leave with, you know, Ryan was coming in the, the next year. Maybe Ryan was promised playing time or something like that, and Rod seemed writing on the wall. Who knows? But, you know, Rod Rowe was a great teammate for the time that I was here and did a lot of great things for this university on the, on the court. Yeah, you know, uh, being in sports all of your life like you have, there are some times where personalities – just don't mesh right and 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 some people say that pretty much was the same thing between tubby smith and rajon rondo right you can't criticize either one but it's just that maybe they just don't see eye to eye and sometimes the best thing is go different ways part ways and enjoy wherever you go and and have the best of them that's what rod did rod went to usc and had a fabulous career ended up in the nba you know, he would have went to the NBA from Kentucky too. Not not saying that, but he did what was best for him, and I think Coach did what was best for our program at the time. Then we get to the magical year, ninety five, ninety six. You 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 just knew from the get go. Uh, if you hadn't won the title that year, <laughs> you know we probably got ran out of the state, <laughs> maybe even out of the country. <laughs> but but you you started off, and it's really intriguing because. Um, you opened with number 14, Maryland, at the tip-off classic. Right. And they were very good that year. Very good. Very, very good. very good. You beat them, and then you immediately come back four nights later and play a John Calipari UMass team with Marcus Camby yeah. up at Detroit in the NBA arena there in Detroit. Mm-hmm. They call it the Great Eight at the time, I right. think. And a pretty remarkable game. Yes, it was. Uh, you Basically, Marcus Camby. Marcus Camby played one of his best, greatest college games ever against us. And, you know, I watched clips of when Calipari talking about Camby, talking about, I got this, don't worry about the coach, everything's going to be all right. And just, you know, battling back and forth. But what people don't understand about us is we had so much talent coming back. Coach didn't have it figured out yet, you know, Early on in the season, we was trying to figure out which players need to play with which, play, which other players, figure out the rotation. And uh, a lot of people may not remember this, but I was the 12th man to start that year out. You know, we had Wayne Turner, Ron Mercer, Derek Anderson, and you can go on and on, Tony Delk, uh, Walter McCart. You can go on and on. So Coach was trying to figure out what was the best for our team. And in the first two games, you know, we won Maryland. Probably didn't play well. You match beaters. Probably didn't play well because we still trying to figure it out. You know, Tony Depp was a point guard then. And I think after that game was when Coach made the move that he was going to bring me into the point guard, move Tony to a natural spot shooting guard. Smart coach, wasn't he? Smart coach, smart coach. <laughs> Just took a couple games to get there, but it was smart coach. Smart coaching on his part. And then you went on a huge winning streak. 26 in a row, something like something that. Like that. You, you were number one until you lost to UMass. Yes. And then you reclaimed it uh, February 27th. Uh, you went back to number one, reclaimed number one. You're playing very, very well. You get down to Mississippi the State. SEC tournament. Mississippi State. Mississippi State. What was the big kid 
Dante Dante Jones. Dante Jones. I, I think he uh, he had him a pretty good game that night. Dante Jones had a game that got him drafted super high in the NBA first round. He may have had 26, 28 points, you know, hitting everything he threw up. And we didn't play bad, but we didn't play our best ball. And I, I think I remember a vividly was Antoine Walker. Him and Coach, Coach wasn't pleased with his with the way he was performing, so he benched him. The entire second half. The entire second half. And now, you were down at half, though. Yeah. You were down at half. But uh, he didn't come back out and, and, and play in the second half. It, it seems like both losses you had that year turned out to be good for the future. It was. It was, it was a great loss. You know, 26 in a row to lose in the SEC tournament is a lot better than winning 28 and losing the NCAA tournament. Because if you lose then, you're done. So we knew we still had a chance to bounce back, regroup as a team, and go on a great run down the stretch. And do, do, do you think that perhaps being the program that Mississippi State was and not very well respected outside the league, that they were underappreciated that year? Because, you know, everybody says, boy, lost to Mississippi State. But people forget two weeks more. later, they're the upsetting some teams at Rupp Arena Right. I think Cincinnati had a great team that year, and, and I think team. they beat them in the regional final to make the final four. Right, they ended up in the final four, and a lot of people forget that because they just see they beat Kentucky in the SEC tournament to snap a winning streak. Mississippi State had a lot of talent. Uh, outside of Dante Jones, they had some great guards. That was, And they just played a style of basketball that was suited for them. And – Kind of tough for us because they was a very physical, physical basketball team. But they beat us, and they get, helped us refocus on the ultimate prize, and that was to win a national championship. Your final four games that season. Let's go into them a little bit because there were some interesting personalities in all of them, interesting games. But first of all, Rick Majerus, rest his soul, he, he just had an unfortunate draw, draw <laughs> to run into Kentucky. Every year he had a good team. Yes. And and, and that year um, had a great team and gets blown out 31. We had a great play, game plan. Yes. You know, they had Keith Van Horn, uh, Andre, I, the Miller kid that played forever in the NBA, Big Michael Doliak, you know. I mean, those three guys could play. They could play. But yeah. they had to play us every year for a long time and just gave them nightmares. And then you beat a Wake Forest team that had a pretty good player going at the time. Yeah, he went number one, Mr. Tim Duncan. Uh, what we normally did was, and that was in Minnesota, mm-hmm. Minnesota. What we normally did on our defensive scheme was we trap big and guard. You know, big and little will trap down on the post. But what Coach decided to do in that game was go big on big, and I think it gave Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan really frustrating that when you got Antoine Walker guarding you, but Mark Pope and Walter McCarty's coming to trap you instead of myself and Tony Depp that you can see over. I think it kind of rattled him a little bit. And and we got out on a hot hot streak that game. Uh, I won't say that's the game. I may have came out and hit a couple threes early on to, to give us a run, and we took off from there. So your first three games in the tournament, or you start out beating San Jose by 38. You beat Virginia Tech by 24. You beat Utah with 31. You beat 
number 13, Wake Forest, by 20. How did Rick keep your guys' hat size within range going to New York? Because nobody was giving anybody a prayer at New York, even though the first team you would play had beat you earlier in the year. The, the biggest thing that we, we did was we remembered the Mississippi State loss, knowing that if we don't come out and play like we're capable, that anybody can beat us. And one thing Coach always said, come tournament time, everybody's a great team or they wouldn't be there. So that was our approach. We respected everybody we played. Those teams that we beat had some talented players. But we were we were focused on, on the ultimate prize. Before we get into those final two games, I want to bring up a name and just in your memory go back to what you remember about this kid that year, not anything he did beyond that year. Right. But what do you remember most when you saw Nazi Mohammed walk onto the floor the first time you met him in practice that freshman year? I mean, wow. you know, Charles Barkley was a little boy compared to him. Yes, I was like, wow. Did you think he would ever become a basketball player from that first time you spotted him? I was worried because I knew what type of uh, strength and conditioning program we had at Kentucky and the way Coach was. I was worried for him that maybe this wasn't for him. But, you know, and I think it's the year that he started a JV program. For that sole reason to get him playing Play, time. Getting playing time, which was a gr great move on Coach's part. Uh, Frank Vogel played on it as well, who's now an NBA coach. Uh, I was just – I was worried for him because he was a, a monster of a man at his height. And you look at 350, 360 pounds, 360 pounds. The way Coach wanted to play, you thought – this, this kid's not going to last it's This is not made for him. This is different. But one thing I, I loved about Nas is every single day he worked. And Coach wasn't wasn't easy on him either. He, he busted his tail. Nas, he busted his tail, and Coach busted his tail. <laughs> so he was getting it twice from himself and from Coach. But he worked and worked and worked. And, and amazingly – he lasted, I think, longer in the NBA than any other Kentucky player. And, I mean, he wasn't just a role player either. Right. I think it's in history. <laughs> yes. I think he had 16, 17 years in of playing, which is tremendous. When you seen him when he first came in to where he ended up. And I think the, the great thing that, about Nas is towards the end of his career, teams wanted him to be a part of their locker room because he was a great teammate. And he was a great teammate at Kentucky, too. He was a hard worker, uh, very smart individual that, that, that knew the ins and outs of, of what it takes to be successful. And just super proud of, of all he accomplished because when he first walked through that door, he was like, it's, it's going to be hard on me. He might, not, he might not make it, but he stuck with it. A lot of people may not know this. I don't know that that many people knew it back then, but had it not been for another teammate, he probably would have never come to Kentucky. Yeah, I think Antoine Walker. Antoine Walker. I think uh, Coach was recruiting Antoine and may have seen Nazi. And, you know, Coach liked projects. He liked projects. I think all coaches like to take one kid that not a lot of – You want to mold something with your own hands. Right. And and Nazi was, was that guy for uh, for Coach. But like I say, when he first came in, he was – 
you was worried because you knew how strange things were at, at Kentucky with working at Let's be honest. You didn't think he'd be around for the second semester. <laughs> I thought maybe, you know, at the end of the first year, it, with him not producing, not getting to play a lot on, on the – with us, that uh, he may feel like he wouldn't go somewhere else. But I think he got in his mind that, hey, I can do this. I just got to work a little harder than, than most. And, you know, he left after his junior year. So you can see the transformation from when he came in that he left. I think he was 13th pick in yeah. the draft. And still still working in the NBA. Matter of fact, with Oklahoma City, I think it's just and tremendous done story. tremendously in his own business world. Yes. And I think he just opened up something else in Chicago, like a wine 11-11 shop. So Nas is – he is that he is that individual that you can look at and, and say – Anything can happen if you put your mind to it. Because we all thought Niles was going to struggle in Kentucky. He was the longest NBA – had the longest NBA career probably out of anybody in the history of Kentucky basketball. We get to New York. You're flying. Had you ever been to the Big Apple before that trip or not? No, that was the first time. What was it like when you were landing – I don't know where you went into Newark or where you went into uh, JFK or LaGuardia, but – when you land, you see the bright lights of New York. Are you over overwhelmed? Nah, you know I'm a I'm a small town guy, and I will always be a small town guy. But I, I do love, you know, seeing different places, and being at, at the University of Kentucky. I, when we got to New York, we had one job: basketball. We didn't really get to enjoy the the bright lights, big cities, you know, like they do now when they go in maybe a day or two early go. And sure. unfortunately, you weren't playing in the garden. You were playing over in the Meadowlands, yeah, across the river. We was over in the Meadowlands in the, uh, the old Nest, Nest facility. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. But but we had one job. What was, what was uh, Rick's uh, motivational program leading up to the UMass game? Did he talk very much about the first game or – was it more about you all doing what you got to do? Don't worry about them. If you do your thing, you'll be all, all right. Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing is he kept showing us a clip where I think it was uh, one of the guards, Padilla, or one of them said, we beat them once, we beat them again. So that was our driving motivation. They really felt that they were the better team. But we knew we were the better team. And we came out and played and, and beat them in the Meadowlands, which was great, knowing you get a chance to play one more night either get a shot at Mississippi State again or Syracuse. So, Were you pulling for Mississippi State or not? I was. I was. I was pulling for them for two reasons. One, there was an SEC school, and for two, they beat us, and we wanted to beat them. But, you know, Syracuse ended up beating them, and, you know, the rest is history. To a lot of fans, the Syracuse game was sort of anticlimactic. Yes. You had the big run. You You – took UMass and put them to bed, and it, it was like, Jim who? Right. I think I think most Kentucky fans wanted Mississippi State as well, being that they beat us in the SEC tournament. But uh, it didn't happen that way. Ended up playing a, a great Syracuse team with, with John Wallace, uh, who was a first-round NBA draft pick. Jim Bayham, who's a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, going against that vaunted Syracuse zone, had to figure out, where we're going to get some easy shots and 
you know, lucky for us, the Tony Delk shot the ball, lights out. Whose lap was he landed into when he shot that one from the baseline? That, I mean, he had to be five feet out of bounds in the air when he released it. I think it was the whole team over. I think everybody's trying to catch him, <laughs> <laughs> trying to catch him. You know, that was that was one of the greatest shots before the Cameron Real shot against Duke. So, leading up to the championship game that night, what was it like around the hotel? And then in the, in the locker room, was anybody tense? Or was it, you know, or was it just total confidence? No, I don't think it was. Uh, I think it was just business as usual. You know, we had a mentality of one game at a time, and that's the way coach was. You know, coach never let you get too high, and he never let you get too low. You know, he knew he had a great team. We knew we had a great team. It was just about us going out there and, and doing what we do, and that's what we did. We went out there, we played. We played great defense. Uh if you go back and watch the game, it was an ugly game on both parts from a fan's perspective because we had been blowing teams out, playing great basketball, and then we had to win an ugly contest. And they just hung around enough to where a couple threes and it could have been a close game. Right, right. They did everything they they did everything they needed to do to have a chance to win at the end. But we just made a couple more plays here and there to win it. You win the title, you come home. The long-term mission to bring Kentucky back is now certified. You got your first title since 78, which was 18 years. You're getting ready to go into your senior year. First of all, how do you deal, how did you deal personally with the constant Rick's going back to the NBA? That's part of it. That's part of it. You, you, you knew as I got older, I felt like I knew this where his heart was. And I know Coach, he failed the first time, so he wanted to go back and prove that I can coach at that at that level at the NBA. So our, our main focus all summer was us as individuals to get better. You know, we had Ron Mercer coming back. We had Wayne Turner, uh, Nazi Muhammad, Allen Edwards, Jeff Shepard, Cameron Mills, Scott Padgett, Derek Anderson. Our job was to get better individuals to defend what we did the year before. If coach would have left, coach would have left. We still, we still were gonna be here, so we still had to get better. No matter if coach left and who came in, we still had one job, and that was to defend what we did in '96. You, you you get ready for your senior year, and of course, I guess probably by the first of May, you know that Rick's going to know where he's going to be back. What was what was the off season like that summer? Typically the same, the same that. Uh, been to summer before, you know, working hard to get better, do whatever you got to do for the team. Uh, Coach did call us into his house and, and let us know after the, the 96 year that, you know, the NBA talks is there, and he asked each individual, what do you think? You know, we had some guys that said, we don't want you to go. We had some guys that said, we understood if you did go, you know. So I think our mentality was on our team. No matter who was going to be the coach, if he left, we still was going to be there. And that's, I think that's the mentality that we had, you know, and we was, we would have respected his decision either way. We loved that he stayed, but we would have respected if he went too because we understood that that was his dream to get back. A big part of that championship uh, with Rick and with C.M. Newton, your AD at the time, did, uh, did C.M. Newton uh, have any kind of a, a personal or a private um, – 
chat with the team after the game or anything? Oh, uh, he's he's around. You know, he's patting everybody, saying good job. Sim was he was a, he was a great guy, and the, and the thing about him was he let his coaches coach. You know, he wasn't he wasn't, and I hate to I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, but he's not a Jerry Jones. Okay, <laughs> he's not a Jerry. He's not a Jerry. He's not a hands on guy with a with a program. Yeah, he doesn't walk around with a whip. It's my way or no way. You know, he hired those guys to do a job, and he let those guys do the job. And see him as a true ambassador for this university. Uh, you you come back in '96, '97, your senior year. You have a a great overall record, thirty five and five, and uh, we'll get to the end here in a few minutes. But uh, you know, everybody was was thinking repeat, Including and then myself. and then right out of the gate, you stub your toe. <laughs> Opening game, Clemson in Indianapolis, seventy nine seventy one in overtime. What do you remember most about that? Honestly, I don't. I don't. You know, that's not one of the games that I remember uh, vividly that, that year. I remember more later in the season than that game. So, I honestly can't say I can't remember much about it. I think you ended up, let's see, two, four, about 15 or 16 in a row that you won after that. Things were rolling. Uh, you uh, beat Indiana Great when it was a big game. And it needs to be a big game again. Thank you. We both to, agree on that. Yes. That's got to happen. And playing in a neutral facility where you have the, the half and half, the half red and half blue is the greatest atmosphere I probably played in in college is when you got – when you went to – and played in the – And you can say that because you also played in Kentucky-Louisville rivalry. Right, right. I mean, you're one of the few that's played in them both, but that, there was nothing like Indiana and Bob Knight to get your adrenaline flowing. No, not – you know, on a – Saturday afternoon, you walk into the the, uh, the dome in Indianapolis when it was there, and you got twenty thousand people wearing red, twenty thousand people wearing blue, and two great programs going at it with two great coaches. They need to get it back. December the seventh, nineteen ninety six, in Louisville, Kentucky, Freedom Hall, number six Kentucky and number eight Indiana, ninety nine to sixty five. Butt whooping, <laughs> butt whooping. I, if uh, if if the listeners could only see your smile right now, <laughs> that was that was great. You know, as a senior, to beat a Bobby Knight coach team like that, and I think that's what Dirk Anderson dunked on uh, one of their players. And Dirk was known to do that. He was known to catch somebody slipping. And when you can beat an Indiana that bad. It makes it feel a little bit better. You you go through that season and your biggest stumbling blocks, and I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, there was two bad losses. Uh, the first one wasn't that bad. It was overtime. You lost at South Carolina, eighty four seventy nine. Yes. Uh, the most heartbreaking. I think we lost probably of your career. Senior night. Was senior night. Senior night. Again to South Carolina. Again to South Carolina. Um, let's go through senior night while we're talking about it. Uh, the the losses are, but leading up to the game, what was it like as a Kentucky kid growing up in Kentucky? Uh, you 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 basically done everything that you could want to do. You'd right. already cut the nets down. 
you're out there on the floor with your family and your little daughter, unbeknownst to you, that you would be doing that again <laughs> many years later, and exactly. you would become known as McCalla's father, <laughs> or rather than her being known as your daughter. You know, just the excitement, just the excitement of you've seen it for so many years, and I was a part of it for three years to see a senior class go out, and the fan appreciation that, that they got, and knowing that today was my day, you know, to go through that. And I got to go through it with a great bunch of guys, you know, Derek Anderson, Jared Prickett, who stuck around the extra year to – because he uh, set out a year. So just just the build-up and the excitement. Uh, you don't understand it until you run through that hoop. You know, when they call your name, you run through the hoop. The crowd gives you that ovation. Uh, you come out there to your family. Who's there for you? And I, I, I had about 20 family members there that day. They were sitting up in the in the crowd. And the excitement that they had that day made my excitement better because they they were living through me and we was enjoying this moment together. Uh, and then have one of my best friends, Wayne Turner, who presented me with my jersey that day, with my, my daughter right there. It's, it's undescribable. Uh, you know, just one and done is great, and I understand those kids playing to get to the NBA, but if you – Around long enough to experience a senior day is something that you'll never forget in your life. Almost always on the couple of days leading up to senior days when they have the seniors around for special interviews with the TV people to right. promote it, uh, the question always comes by, are you going to be able to hold it when they sing Mount Kentucky <laughs> home? It is. It's hard. It's hard. Uh, being a Kentucky kid, you know, it was really hard. But you also got to realize that once all the festivities over, you still have a game to play. And I think you probably had more tears in the crowd than out of the three seniors that was on the floor with me at the time. But just just that that experience is, is one that I'll never forget. To, like I say, running through the hoop, got your family waiting there, and just that, that roar from the Rupp Arena crowd is unbelievable. Once the loss wore off, 24 hours later from South Carolina there. Eddie Fogler, he, that, that's probably his crown jewel to his whole career was beating that team twice that year. Right. Uh, but once that wore off, I think that a lot of people look at this, okay, this is going to be our Mississippi State for this year. Yes. yes. We're going to come back and we're going to roll. Yes. And uh, you, you, you were rolling pretty good. I mean, you went through Montana, Iowa, St. Uh, Joseph, and then – you put it on poor Rick Majerus again, uh, seventy-two to fifty-nine, and then you got to play Minnesota and Clem Haskins. Yes, and it was that was a great feeling for me because Clem recruited me out of high school. Uh, went to a camp of his in the summertime, and I knew Clem through his ties from Taylor County, through people that knew knew him of when he played and stuff like that. So. To, to be able to to be on the same court with him and, and his wife, they're, they're great people. You know, they welcome me. From pretty much your part of the country, too. Yeah, from the same area. They was from Camelsville. I was born in Lebanon. Now I'm in Camelsville with them. So, you know, 
just great guy, great family. His brother played here. Yes. Marion, great guy. Yeah. It's just great all around. And he he played a style that was banging bruising, you know, with Minnesota. When you played Minnesota, you knew you was in a, in a fight because they, they didn't quit. Uh, had a great team. Bobby I think he had a, a pretty good kid from uh, Harlan that played for him over there a while. Charles Thomas. Yes. Charles Thomas played there around the same time. He was a little younger. I think yeah. he may have been a freshman at the time. We got a little playing time. Uh, the greatest moment of, of that game is not only beating Minnesota, but I think Clem got a technical. Derek had been out from the ACL and got to come in and shoot the two free throws. We we get to Arizona. And, uh, well, first, first of all, let's go back to uh, San Jose. Um, in between the games in San Jose, uh, Rick allows someone, the doctor, someone to run Derek up to San Francisco and get some tests and, you know, whether he's able to go or not. Right. Tell us what you remember most about what went on and what maybe you know then that you couldn't say then that you can say now. As far as Derek was ready. (laughs) Derek was ready. Uh, He had been practicing. Uh, looking fabulous. You know, he was the Dirk Anderson of old, knocking down jumpers, getting steals, running and jumping, dunking, you know. So, basically, in our mind, we probably, I think everybody for a man thought he was playing. Thought the coach was going to let him play. But uh, coach made a great decision. You know, he was looking for Dirk's future more than Dirk's present. You know, we had made it to where we were without Dirk because other guys stepped up and played well. With Dirk, we went back-to-back, no doubt, you know, hands down. I don't care what anybody says or who we played. We went back-to-back national titles. Dirk probably could have played. Well, Dirk could play in the in the Final Four. And he, But but he was going through full practices here, wasn't he? Yes, he was going through full practice and everything. So how can you, how can you get any less hurt in a game than you can a full practice going up against you guys? Right, but, you know, Coach made a decision. He looked for his future. You know, he didn't want nothing to have him set back because Dirk was going to be a high, high NBA draft. Would you have made that same draft. decision if you had been the coach? If I had been the coach, I think I would have made a decision of sitting down and asked the student athlete what did he want to do, you know. Then that way it's – Now, Dirk says he wanted to play. I know Derek wanted to play. Derek was a competitor. Of course you would too. Anyone yeah. would. A competitor. Yeah. yeah. A competitor wants to be out there with his brothers in battle. But hindsight's twenty twenty. Dirk has a, had a great NBA career, still living well off of his NBA career. You know, to a Kentucky fan, coach made the wrong decision <laughs> <laughs> because we wanted, the fans wanted the back-to-back title, knew what Derek could bring to us. But – for Dirk's future, Coach made the right decision. So, it's a win-win for for Coach and Dirk. I think it was a win-win for everybody because we still should have won in 97. It was really a good game. It was a great game. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it was just one of those things where you came up a little bit short in overtime. Yes. Um, missed a couple free throws that could have made a difference in regulation, if I remember correctly. About six. After the game, think back and tell me what 
was running through your mind when you realized you were pulling that jersey off for the last time? It was tough. It was tough walking off the floor for me knowing that that was my last game and we were so close to to doing something that, you know, a lot of people didn't think we could when Dirk got hurt. You know, once Dirk went down, everybody's predictions changed. They didn't think we was going to be the same type of team, but every all the guys stepped it up and and gave more. So to get to the Final Four and then to get to the National Championship game and to even get to overtime, being in foul trouble, people forget, you know, Ron Mercer's in foul trouble, Wayne Turner's in foul trouble. We out there playing with, with a group of guys that normally didn't play together in certain situations. You know, I, I hit a three at the, at the buzzer to give us a shot to go to overtime. And I I still believe, and I, I, I may be – I'm crazy for saying this, but when they come down court and Scott Patrick gets that rebound and I'm over on the wing on the outlet, I tell myself all the time, if he outlets me that basketball, I was going to make that shot. <laughs> from, from about <laughs> over past half court, I, I tell myself that all the time. But, uh, you know, it was just – Great to get the get the overtime and give your give your team a chance, and then you give uh, you gotta give Arizona their credit. You know, those guys, some of those guys played better in that one game than they had all year. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's part of it. Certain guys steps up for them, and they got the win. So, but the loss was tough, but it all got better when we came back and we had a little thing at Rupp and just the ovation that we got and the appreciation for the fans made you realize you move on from the loss because it's bigger. You're through at Kentucky, you, your college career. What did you think about your future, what you were going to do after your college days at that time? I had no idea. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to play professionally. I thought I was good enough to play professionally uh, in the NBA or, you know, even overseas. I think it's what communication, because came in where after that year, Rick did leave. You know, he went to the, went back to the NBA. Uh, I wish if you can do it all over again, I wish I could have had a chance to sit down with him to, to come up with a plan to meet with a couple agents and – and see see where that that led me because I I knew in my heart I was good enough to to play at the next level. Uh, I did get to go to Portsmouth to play in the NBA thing after. Ended up playing a year or two at Sioux Falls, South South Dakota, which was the the uh, it's the net, it's the G League back then. It was the CBA played out there, but I still wish I would have sat down with coach and came up with a better plan for myself. Uh, but hindsight's 2020. I love what I do now. I have no regrets. Uh, I love teaching. I love coaching, giving back to the youth. One day, uh, Mr. Kiley always told me that if anybody makes it as a coach out of this program, it's going to be you, E. He always called me E. He said, you got a basketball mind, and you'll make a great coach at this level. So hopefully one day I get a shot to coach as assistant or something at the college level. You've just finished listening to episode 79 of Conversations with Oscar Combs presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. 
Oscar has more with Anthony in our next episode, and that will be episode 80, in which Anthony will talk about his former teammates and his relationship with Coach Rick Pitino. Episodes of Conversations can always be found at oscarcombs.com. For your mobile devices, each episode is available for free through iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Search for at Wildcat News and subscribe, and new episodes will be automatically downloaded for absolutely free. For the Big O Online, follow him on Twitter at Wildcat News. For Anthony Epps and Oscar, I'm Bo Robinson. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. And as always, go Big Blue.